You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. If you're a guest with us or you are just now starting to attend, you need to know we've been in the book of Acts and we will continue in the book of Acts throughout the fall. I, I think we have one break in a couple of weeks where we're going to just pick a topic and go after it, um, a different topic than the book of Acts. And then we have another break, but that's about it. So we're going to be in Acts a lot. Now, we will not cover every single verse in the book of Acts. And it's interesting uh, preaching this book because it's a harder book to preach. Uh, first, it's narrative. And narrative is sometimes more difficult to preach because like, how do you, you know, you just generally are giving principles and trying to seat it. But secondly, there's things that go on in the book of Acts that don't generally happen. Um, they, you, you run across certain passages where uh, you just go, I've never seen that in my life. I've never heard of that happening. And a lot of people would say it's because the book of Acts is transitional in nature. Uh, it, it, is, it, is, it is moving us from Jesus's earthly ministry to the Holy Spirit's ministry through the church. Uh, and, and so as we are making that move, theology is getting worked out. That's actually gonna become pretty significant here uh, in the coming chapters as we get into Saul's conversion and then the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit. And it's essentially God showing his desire for all people, all nations to come to know him. But as we march through the book of Acts, we realize uh, kind of successively how that happened. So it's, it's an interesting book to preach because of that. Um, and also a lot of fun because it reminds us of the dynamic nature of our faith, that Jesus is alive and we are to remember that and we are joining up in that journey of bringing people the gospel and by by God's grace, seeing many come to faith. And we hit in today's passage something interesting, which is a, it's, it's both a growth problem and a mercy problem. So thus far in the book of Acts, the gospel has generally stayed in Jerusalem. And, and it's about to go beyond Jerusalem, but for the most part, everything that's happening is happening in Jerusalem. And if you remember Acts 1.8, uh, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, that there's this movement outward of the gospel from Jerusalem. But so far in the story, we're basically still just in Jerusalem. And as the church is growing and, the, and they're figuring things out in Jerusalem, they run into issues. The other thing you need to know about how this works together is that Essentially, at this point, and it doesn't really change until you get to Antioch in at chapter 13, but until this point in the narrative, the Jewish faith and the Christian faith were basically hanging out together. Um, so a lot of how the early believers operated was in the synagogues, you see Paul's ministry there, but in the temples, we see that in Acts chapter two. And so there was not a huge differentiation between these two groups at this time. But they're gonna become more differentiated as they work out the implications of their belief. But as so far, a lot of people who are coming to faith in the book of Acts are Jews who realize Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of the prophecy and we'll even see that in this passage that many priests become obedient to faith. So it moves out. 
Uh, And all of that is going on as we discuss this. So we need to realize that for this passage today, we're dealing with the growth of the church in Jerusalem, the connection that the church has to mercy ministry and how it should care for those in its congregation that have needs and how they're supposed to handle it. But sometimes when we read a passage that we're about to get into, and we'll be in Acts chapter six, we just assume that this is, this is normative, always church life kind of stuff. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna read Acts chapter six, one through seven, uh, and we're gonna work through that passage a little bit and then try and go, okay, God, what, what, what is always true? And that's always the, the harder work sometimes for us. What's always true here? Uh, because the need of the Jerusalem church might be different than the need of the Spring Texas church, might be different than the need of the North Africa church, and different than the need of the church in Iraq. Like there's different needs and ways they have to address it. And so that's what we'll see today. But remember, the church is growing, and they're also trying to care for the growing church, but also do the things that Jesus has called them to. And have you ever felt that tension? Uh, as your life gets busier and you kind of hit these ceiling points, you gotta go, we gotta figure out something else out. The usual stuff's not working. And that's what they're about to feel. The usual things they do to do church life are not working. And they have to come to a, a decision point. So here we go. Acts chapter six, starting in verse one. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, and a proselyte of Antioch, they set before the apostles, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And then we have a summary statement that, that Luke gives multiple times in the book of Acts. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Note that. And a great many priests became obedient to faith. So one through six kind of gives us both a problem and a solution. And then verse seven tells us a result. And, and, and the gospel continued to grow. So a couple of key words here that are just gonna be helpful for us as we get into it to kind of build our lexicon. We have Hellenists and Hebrews. So there were widows, and the Hellenist widows were people who uh, were not from, not native to Jerusalem. They were Greek-speaking and probably also spoke their native language, uh, but they didn't speak Aramaic. And so we have one group with a Greek background who were in Jerusalem, and we have one group, the Hellenists, who had a Jewish background, they spoke Aramaic. And so what we kind of have, and this happens in every church environment, doesn't it, insiders and outsiders, is, is one group knew the people, knew the language, and it was much easier for them to move. And another group was not as familiar and not as known. And the Hellenist brought a complaint saying, our widows are being neglected. So the church was apparently daily providing food to widows, and we know that the Apostle Paul, later, because we're not at his conversion yet, but he defines widows who are truly widows as those who have no family and means of having their needs met. 
is that he kind of says to his church, uh, he says to Timothy, honor widows who are truly widows. And he means if somebody has, fam- if a widow has family, let the family, t- let the family take care of them. Don't enable the family not to. Um, if they have means, right? Let's just pretend, you know, today in our day and age, like if the husband had life insurance and now that widow is provided for financially, that's a different category of widow than the one who has no family, no means, no resources, no employment, and he's going, you have to care for that. So these women were there being cared for, having food provided for them on a daily basis. And then you have the 12, those are the 12 apostles. So the 12, what we, what we realize at this point is that there's the apostles who are helping to distribute the food. We've seen in chapter four and we've seen in chapter five that when the church brings money to them, they give the money to the apostles and the apostles distribute it. And so you're feeling this tension point. The church is continuing to grow. And how does it grow? By the preaching of the gospel by the declaration of God's, of God's word and the care that comes along with that. I mean, Jesus says that your world will know who you, you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. So these two things have to go together, but the preaching of the gospel is how people hear and understand. So they're to do that because Jesus commissioned them, expected that of them, but now they, in caring for the church, are doing all these other things. So they're distributing money and they're distributing food and now they have a complaint come to them and they have to handle the complaint. And they, go, this, they just go, this isn't right. Now, they're not saying that this isn't right like we shouldn't care about this. They're specifically saying, Jesus has asked things of us that we need to do. And it is not right for us to do this and neglect the thing we know Jesus has said for us to do. Thus, find amongst you. He actually hands the problem. They hand the problem back to the church. Find people from amongst yourselves, and and they kind of set the boundaries. Good character, full of the spirit. Find them and give them to us, and we, we will commission them. And so the apostles still sign off. They don't just go, hey, handle it yourselves, we out. But they say, here's the issue. Here's what we want you to do. Go do it, bring it to us, and if that's great, great. We'll go, we'll go forward, and they do. And the whole church agreed. All they summoned agreed, and then we see the result. The word of God continued to increase. Why? Because they could devote themselves to the things that God had called them to, the ministry of the word and prayer. They could devote themselves to the right things. And so sometimes people would say about this, oh, these, are, these must be, the first deacons. I don't think they're the first deacons, but we do now see the model, the division of giftedness. And so we use this to help us understand how it works, but they're not like, hey, we need deacons, we need to do this, we need to do that. But we get the same idea of service and ministry and that division of giftedness, so to speak, from passages like this. And when Paul gives qualifications for elders and qualifications for deacons, so it's kind of like proto-deacon, right? Like if we had to say it like that, it's not like they're sitting there going, and here are the deacons. Uh, but it's, it gives us this idea early in the life of the church that there are ways that the church is to live its life out and there are gifts that are given to different people to live that life out. And when that happens right, the church continues to grow. So just think about your own life for a second in those moments where you've gotten, you realize that you've kind of gotten overmatched. 
You know, the joke when you move from two kids to three is you go from man to man to zone defense. You have to change how you parent. And then I think once you get like past five, you don't even care anymore. It doesn't even matter. Um, but the way you operate, and it happens in church life too, you know, at this size you operate a certain way, and, and that, can, that can be really good, but it can also be a limiter, can it? And so the apostles had a way that they operated. They had a way that, they want, that the church life was working, but as the growth continued, they kept running up against a problem. Man, I'm spending all my time tending to the distribution of money and or being sure the food's done and now there's complaints coming and we can no longer do the thing that God has called us to. We have to change that and they change it. And you'll see these crisis moments. My favorite crisis moment is Acts 15. It's a theological crisis, which is where they're going, people are telling us that you gotta get circumcised. The Gentiles have to all get circumcised. Well, praise God that that's not what they concluded. But they're trying to figure out how their faith works. And they don't have an answer for how their faith works because, right, there's the Jewish and, and Christian Gentile blend and they're having to understand how this works out. So what do they do? They come together and they have to figure something out. They have to decide how is this supposed to work? What does the scripture say and what have we experienced that will help us understand what goes on? So chapter six, it's a pressure point and they have to address it. And they do. A cool thing that they do in this as well, and this is all just us talking about the passage so we can get to principles here in a moment, but a cool thing that they do in this is everybody they select has a Greek name. So the problem came from the Hellenists, right? The Greek background believers. And they go to the church and the church says, you know, they say, let's solve the problem. And they bring before the apostles Greek background believers. Here's who we think could do this. And we have a proselyte as well. So somebody with a background converted to Judaism and probably converted to then the way, as it is called later. And so even the church was smart. They said, okay, let's select then people, representatives, to, who have a Greek background, who speak the language and can better care for this group of widows. Let's be sure that we can do that, which was a smart way to do it. It really was a smart way for them to do it. And so they do all this and the assumption then, and you'll see it continuing, the assumption is the gospel continues to grow because now different needs are being met. Now, before we get into some of these, uh, these principles, first we need to know that the issue on the table, now I'm quoting Hamilton, but the issue on the table is how does the gospel advance? It's really not just how do we care for people well, that's not, that's not the key issue, that's an issue. The key issue is how do we continue to preach the gospel and, and demonstrate, or I'll call it declare the gospel and demonstrate the gospel in the life of the church? Because both things are necessary, right? Like right foot, left foot. How do we preach the good news and then show how the good news transforms us in our actions, in our life? And so the issue is an issue of how the gospel advances in Jerusalem at the current moment. And they're going, we're done, we can't, we can't do it. We've, we're spending so much time spinning our wheels doing this and you probably have been in jobs or in places where you have to put out fires all day. And if we could summarize what the apostles say, they go, we can't just keep putting out fires, we have to start some. That's what we have to do. 
We can't just be putting out fires all day because we will be neglecting what God has given to us. And so there is an issue of gospel advancement, both in the proclamation of the gospel, but also in the demonstration of the gospel. That both of these things are necessary. And I bet if I ask you even in this room today, like where do you land? Are you, are you more naturally inclined to serve and do mercy and care for people? Or are you naturally inclined to preach and speak things about God? You would likely be able pretty easily to go naturally inclined here. That this, this is something that I love to do. I love to serve, I love to help, I love to connect, I love to pray for, I love, like, like some people just have bleeding hearts and they love to sit with somebody for hours and just hear what's going on. Tell me what's going on with you and what do you need? And, you know, and, and they'll block out the whole day. God has given that person that giftedness and those desires and they're necessary, why? Because they help the gospel be seen and not just heard. And some will preach and they'll teach and they'll engage that way. And it's not, it doesn't mean exclusively, but just where do they generally go? And this is that moment, that crisis moment that we get. And one thing I really like about this is you ever talk about spiritual gifts and there's four chapters where you can find them. Uh, and this, I had a, a professor teach me this and it was really easy, 12, 12, four and four. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians four and 1 Peter four are the four places where you can go to read about spiritual gifts, and Peter is my style, right? We already read in Acts chapter four, he's an uneducated common man, and so simpler stuff. When you read Paul, Paul's all confusing, but Peter's like, let me, let me just summarize it for you. You have speaking gifts and you have serving gifts. That's really what you have. You know, and then Paul's like, if they're a leader, let them lead like this. And if they have mercy, let them have mercy like this. And if they teach, let them teach like this. And hospitality like this. I'm like, bro, Paul, you're killing me. Peter goes, let me just summarize it. Speaking, serving. Like, okay, I can grab onto that. And it's interesting that you even see some of that here. Now, it doesn't pigeonhole these guys, which is what we're gonna have to hold on to here for a second. It doesn't pigeonhole any of them because in fact, two of the seven that are selected become key people in chapter seven and chapter eight about preaching. In fact, one of those seven is our first martyr that we know of. The other one brings the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch and becomes uh, Philip the Evangelist. And 20 years later, we see him hanging out in Caesarea, uh, later in the book, like doing his work, and stayed in the house of Philip the Evangelist. And so it doesn't mean these guys only do that, but for this moment and in this way, they're gonna use their giftedness to help the gospel be seen in Jerusalem. So now that we kind of have an idea of what's going on in the passage, I wanted to try to go, I was sitting there when I was playing this going, how on earth do you then go, what do you do? How do we live this out? So I'm gonna try and bring this to a couple of points of both just principle and then a couple of ways that we could just be grateful, we could pray, we could be encouraged. But here's one, here's one. Um, and it may not be the one that you were expecting, but good. Godly leaders, I'm gonna use that phrase a lot because we're talking about leadership issues. Godly leaders hear critique and address problems that prohibit the advancement of the gospel, right? There's an issue that came up. They realize that they can't solve every problem. And so they release some of that control. And I'm kind of a control freak, so it's harder for me to do that. But they hear a problem, they receive the critique, and they address it. Why? Not just because they want to just address everything that comes up. Because they realize the problem is prohibiting the advancement of the gospel in two ways. Using their giftedness, 
to preach and pray, and using the giftedness of others to serve and care. So we hit this bottleneck, and there's this tension point, and they hear critique, and they address it. They don't just go, hey, thanks, put it in the suggestion box, we'll get to it later. They know it's important. So when the Hellenists say, our widows are being neglected, they say, essentially, you're right. You're right. And we can't fix that by ourselves. And one of the most important things that we can do in church leadership is go, we can't, we can't fix that. So we were at an elders retreat just, just last, yesterday and Friday night. And if you were praying for us, thank you so much for your prayers. Uh, but we were, I mean, we were starting, we, you, know, you get to the end and, and I'm like an action item guy, right? So I'm like, okay, well, let's talk through it and let's figure out who's doing what. Right? That's, that's the part. And I was about to jump on something and then Johnny is like, Hans, I'm a little nervous about you just taking on too much. Because I'm, I'm like, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me. And part of that's because you get a little freaked out that it's not going to get done. Anybody like that? You assume it's not going to get done, right. So if you do group work, you're like, oh, you hate group work because you don't trust anybody else in your group to get it done. That's not really me. I love all these guys. But I'm going, I'm not sure how that's going to happen. So I'll take it. And Johnny Smartly steps in and goes, I'm concerned that if you take it, you're going to neglect some of the things that, that we're asking you to do and take on extra. And I was like, ooh, gosh, that's true. That's true. I don't, I, don't, I don't need to just jump on an idea. And so hear the critique and address it. So then we start going, okay, who can we talk to in our church about this so that we're not just absorbing every single thing? We're not grabbing onto every single thing. But it's hard because sometimes we think outcome is really important and we have to control the outcome, so we just, we just really fight to be sure that we get our way. But what, what do we see in the apostles but a desire to hear what's going on, they're accessible and accountable, they hear it, they respond to it, and they release some control. They paint the picture, they give the parameters, but they release some control. They didn't, they didn't give a list of names. They said, pick people like this and bring them to us. And so they didn't go, hey, pick people like this, and here's five of the seven that we would like. You know, they just said, do this, which isn't often how we operate, is it? Because we're pretty political people. We like to be politically savvy, and so we just kind of go, well, if you could mention so-and-so to be on the team, that would be great. But they just hand it off. Here's the box. Now go find the people. So that's a great thing, but we have to remember that it's about the advancement of the gospel. It wasn't just any issue. It was issues that prohibited the church from being healthy and flourishing. That should always be our main concern. So, sometimes, and especially in church life, I don't know why this is. Maybe it's because we're all weird and jacked up. Yeah, that's right. You saying that to me or about you? Like, yeah. yeah I'm not jacked up. But sometimes we have a way of bringing complaints that have zero to do with the most significant things about church life. Zero. Hey, you know what? I don't like the way that person does that. Okay. You know, and saying it's not my problem is like, it seems like the harshest thing in the world. But like, okay, well, if you don't like it and it's significant, you should talk to that person because that has nothing to do with how Jesus is better seen or known. And in fact, if I take it away from you, I'm enabling you not to address something with your brother or sister. I'm hurting you by taking that on. 
And so we don't just bring everything, but when there are things that are hindering Jesus being seen and known, and that could be people being neglected, not being cared for, that was one thing that we came up with really over this weekend. It was like, we need, we need names, we don't just need numbers. We need names of people that exist at this church that we can be praying for and caring for and knowing. Not just like, well, yeah, well, there's you know, X, X amount of people here and that's great, but names of people because they're stories and we have to be connected to them. And so we have to realize the issues that we bring up have to be the issues that are significant for the declaration or demonstration of the gospel. Always, that, that, would, that should be for us the grid. Not I would prefer it if, or I would prefer this if, or I would prefer that if, but this is hurting how Jesus can be known. This is hurting how Jesus can be known. That should be the flag that we raise when we raise them. This is hurting it. Because there will always be, I mean, amen, there will always be prefer, preferential issues. I will ask every person in here and I will have twice as many preferences on what should be done. And I'm sure if we lined out all the preferences that you had, we would not, they would be in conflict with one another because we live conflictedly. And we just kind of go, well, I care about this and I care about this and I know it doesn't make sense, but I'm cool with it because they're my concerns. Somebody else is like, you're crazy. And we just kind of point to like, oh, you are too. So our significant issues are issues about the gospel. That's the first thing. And then as we see that division in Peter, here's what we're gonna see. Some leaders, some people, believers, advance the gospel through proclamation and prayer primarily, primarily, not exclusively. But they have ministry of the word, giftedness, and role. And the 12 felt this. They walked with Jesus, most of them did. Got one guy who was voted in, but he was also there, he was in the ministry because people were always following Jesus. It wasn't like they just added a newbie, but they added somebody who wasn't the original 12 in replacement of Judas. And Jesus commissions them, and Jesus teaches them, and Jesus trains them, and Jesus in his ministry after his resurrection is talking to this crowd, these people, and he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So they know the Lord has called them, selected them, you follow me and you will be fishers of men. They know they have something Jesus has asked of them. And so they know this is, this is what we have to pay attention to. Now, there's a phrase in this passage that can sometimes make us concerned. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Because when we hear it sometimes, we might hear this is really important and this isn't. If this were really important and this weren't, then they would say, so we're just gonna be done. We're done with it. We don't need to do it anymore and we're just gonna let the chips fall where they may but they don't say that. They know this is what God has called them to and this is important as well. So we, God has asked us to do this. We believe God has asked other people to do this and we're gonna allow that to work itself out. That's the issue. It's not, we, you know, we're below this. And sometimes in church life, and I hate it, I hate it. They'll go, oh, well, you know, like, I want to do the important stuff. I don't, want to, I don't want to go greet people. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, a warm person saying hi when you come in is one of the most important things you can have in a church. Right? That's, that, that, like, somebody who's glad to see people, you put me up there, I'm like, hello, 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 because I'm, I'm thinking task, right? Hello, good to see you. I'm glad you're here. And like, who was that jerk you had at the front? Oh, that's one of the pastors. Yeah, Jacob knows, you're amening that. 
And so we need to realize that this is not tier one and tier two. And sometimes even in church life, we talk about like A team and B team or varsity and JV. Oh, well, give, like, give the JV guys just some of the other things. You know, let, let them, you know, do this over here and go do that because, oh, it's like a little, like we're just gonna help them out. And doesn't that diminish the spirit of Jesus that resides in everybody who has put faith in him and the power that God has given to those people and, the, and what might happen when they're there and they say, hi, I'm glad that you're here and they show interest in you? Doesn't that diminish what can happen in any given moment when people avail themselves to the Holy Spirit and go, yeah, put me there, I'm in. So it's not first tier, second tier, first class, second class, you know, A team, B team, or whatever else. That's not it at all. It is the body working together to make Jesus seen and known. And Paul says that. He goes, just because somebody's over here and they have what seems to be a glorious gift or part of the body, they are no more important than someone else. They're not better. And there should be no complaining. And the apostles see this. They say it's not right for us but it is right, it is right, and it is needed. So in the same way some are gonna proclaim the gospel and, and pray and give attention to the ministry of the word, some also advance the gospel through that demonstration and mercy. People see the way that care happens. And honestly, in many churches, especially evangelical churches, it's not the preaching that gets critiqued. It's the other stuff. It's that you guys really don't seem like you actually care about the gospel that you believe. You know, if anything, we've just loaded up on preach, 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 preach. That's all it's all about. And then we have this really underdeveloped part of our church life. In part because, right, mercy's hard. Like hanging out with people who are gonna be, who have issues that you don't have because your issues are perfect. Hanging out with people who have that is a hard thing. And so we'll go, well, we're just gonna preach and make it all about preaching and what happens with preaching. And we're never ever gonna do anything else, you know, because we, we believe that preaching is it. I'm like, well, then you're, you've misread what the apostles said because they didn't say preaching was it. They said preaching is the job for us, preaching in prayer, and we're neglecting it. Which in a sense is them going, shame on us, isn't it? We haven't done what Jesus has asked of us. And it's almost like a moment of repentance. So let's get the people to do that. So seven people are selected from the congregation. And I pronounced their names once and I have no idea how I did. I'm not gonna say it again. Stephen and Philip, I got that one. Then you get Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon. And I, I don't know, I should have rehearsed that before I read it the first time. I was even thinking that as I was reading it. I was like, oh shoot. I didn't give myself a run of these names before saying them out loud to you. And so this delegation of power, of giftedness, of meeting of needs, what it does is it allows for the church to say, you don't just preach a gospel of transformation, but you live one. You, it's evidenced. And we've already cited this verse once, but when Jesus says, a new command that I give to you, that you love one another. By this, everyone, all the world will know that you are my, my disciples, that you have love for one another. If Jesus says, the world will know you're my disciples by your love, 
it's probably pretty important that we have ways as a church that we can demonstrate those things. Some will be structured, some will be known, and others won't. Others will be things that happen in your community groups and as you're out and about and you just care for people. Some will be happening so that you, because you have, you take your parents into your home, honor widows who are truly widows, and you're living out the, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring you in to my home. Some are in the sandwich generation, right, where you're kind of reaching down and caring for kids or grandkids, and then you're reaching up and caring for parents. And you're, and you're, and you're right there. Why? Because you're trying to faithfully live out how to care in the ways that the scriptures demand for believers to care. Another way this happens, and I'm grateful for the team at Genesis, is just the benevolence ministry. The distribution of funds as needs arise. That it's funded and it's there. And it's funny because like, that team is zealous to meet needs. They want to. They go, you have a need? Let us know. We want to help you. We want to help you. And help might be financial, but you might need something else. And they're stepping into the gap and they're going, what do you need? What do you actually need? You see this in our deacons. What do you need? What's going on? Where is life right now? And there are things that we could do for you that would help to serve you. And in serving you, you make Jesus more known. But whether you have primarily giftedness through the, the word, the preaching and prayer or through service, this part is true because, again, this is a gospel advancement issue. All people advance the gospel with boldness. With boldness. Anytime you step out to speak or to serve, you are exercising faith and boldness in what you believe about what Jesus has done. And do not let your flesh try and tell you that that's less important, insignificant, not needed. And in fact, as we see this, this is setting the stage for what happens in chapter seven and what happens in chapter eight when Stephen stands before Jewish leaders and essentially goes on the longest speech in the book of Acts and says, Jesus is dead, but he's the Messiah and he rose. He died at your hands. He rose again and you need to have faith in him. And they say, enough, you're gone. Boldness, boldness. Philip, the evangelist, who for this moment in chapter six is beginning to serve and meet needs of widows and then quickly the Lord goes, I need you over here and he does it. Peter, who's a part of the 12, he's pivotal in seeing the gospel come to the Gentiles and he uses a line that I love which is, they, we received the Holy Spirit in the same way they have, the Gentiles. And that's, in my head, that's a little flip of understanding where it's like, oh, we're awesome, Jewish faith is awesome, everything about what we do is great. But when he's talking about when he sees Cornelius and his household come to faith, he goes, in fact, we've received the Holy Spirit like they have. He almost puts them in a position of honor. Yeah, we have the same spirit. And so regardless of how we view this passage, it is an error to think division of labor, A team, B team. Because we never know at any moment how God might use us, where God might use us, in what capacities God might use us. And so just because you genuinely love to serve, God might put you in a spot where now it's time to proclaim. 
And just because you love to proclaim, God might have you in a spot for a season. It could be months or years where you're generally living out your life through service. That's okay. In fact, that would be expected because that's kind of what we see in Jesus, isn't it? John chapter 13, when he takes his robe, his outer garment off, and he kneels down and he washes the disciples' feet, and he says, in the way that you've seen me serve you, I want you to serve others. And he's saying that to his disciples whom he commissions who are saying this in Acts chapter six. We need to give attention here. You are never just a pigeonholed believer. You never just do one thing. You never only do this. You might usually do something, but you never only do it. Because that doesn't reflect Jesus, does it? Jesus preaches boldly and he serves wholeheartedly. You never see him walking around going, oh yeah, I know other people, other people do the service. I don't. He does both. And so in this passage, though we might have one inclination over another, we always have to be ready for what God might call us into at any moment and at any time. And then as you look at verse seven again, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to faith. A great many of the Jewish leaders who are part of facilitating worship for the Jewish faith, a great many priests became obedient to faith. And so what we see as we finish this idea and the tension point and the decision the selection, the appointment, the commissioning, and now people able to function in different ways. We see a result, and the word of God can increase. If you look at verse one, you see that those statements are sandwiched. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number in verse one, a complaint arose. Verse two, three, four, five, and six, they address it. And then you get to verse seven, and it brings you back, doesn't it? and the word of God continued to increase and multiply. So while it was growing, they hit a moment they had to address, and they address it, and then it continued. So this is the way that I tried to put it. The church is led well, I'm gonna, my wording was specific. A well-led church can grow as God allows. That's the way, that's the way I put it. I can't promise it. Right, because what Paul says is one, waters, uh, one plants another waters, but God makes the growth. So I can't promise growth. I can't say, oh yeah, if you do X, Y, and Z. And I remember one time reading about this church conference where it was promised that if you do it, you will double your budget and double your attendance. If you do these things, we're, you will double it. Now pastors are like, that's kinda cool because they double my salary, like how does that work? And those are mistakes. And they cheapen the grace that we have been given. They cheapen the grace we've been given. But at the same time, I want us to have a desire for people to come to faith. And a commitment to go, what do we need to do so that people can come to faith? And even anticipate, expect, pray for, and hope, but never really know what may or may not happen. 
I know of somebody who has given over 30 years of his life to seeing churches planted and has seen zero. And he hasn't stopped. Zero. And I'll even hear him go, I wish, I wish we would have been able to see more. I wish we, I, I, I don't know why. We've won, from the beginning, we've wanted to see churches planted. And we have stayed at it. And we've seen zero. He's not stopping. Because he knows how it works. You plant, you water, you tend to it, you preach, but God does the growth. And so he doesn't get discouraged when he doesn't get results. Because he knows he's sticking to what God has asked of him. And churches should do the same. Long for it, pray for it, look for it, preach, you know, plant, grow, tend to Tend to the gospel that we have been given, the relationships that we have, and pray that God would bring increase, that people would become obedient. And a great many, and fill it in, it might not be priests for us, but a great many of became obedient to the faith. A great many who? A great many who? So just to summarize a couple of thoughts that we've seen here. First, we as a church must always look for a way to adjust to changing needs. Always. There'll always be changing needs. It doesn't matter about the size. If we're 20, 30, 40, 50, 2,000, 10,000, whatever, there's always needs and we have to be ready to adjust to them. And we have to be ready to speak of them. So then leaders need to be accessible to go, you know, tell me what you're seeing because the apostles didn't see it in the same way. The Hellenists brought the complaint, didn't they? They brought it up. So churches always have to look for ways to adjust to the changing needs that exist within a flock that prohibit Jesus being known. They have to be ready. Second, I would say praise God for the deacons that he has given us at Genesis Church. Right, kind of a proto-deacon passage, but people who are ready to step in and just take on some stuff. And the people, I, I would probably, I'm thinking of that list of deacons in my head. There's not a one that can't teach or lead in proclamational ways or who even they currently might be doing it, but they've also graciously and gladly stepped into a role to help facilitate other things of the church, other areas of church life. And that's awesome. That's awesome. And so we praise God for that. A third thing, we can never neglect that two-pronged approach of declaration and demonstration. We can't go, oh, well, we're just a preaching church. Or, oh, we're just a serving church. We're just one of those. But generally, don't you feel like churches kind of grab onto an identity and just focus on that? That's not gonna be good enough. That's not the kind of church that Jesus wants us to be. So we can't be it. And how do we, how do we fix it? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. How do we address it? How do we stay that way? How do we hold ourselves accountable? I don't know. I don't know every way, and I hate that because I wanna be able to come on a Sunday and give you every answer. I do. This is how we handle this, and this is how we handle that, and this is how we handle that. And as I'm preparing these sermons, so many of the times I go, I don't know. I really don't know the best way to do that. So the Lord's gonna have to make it clear. 
And then finally, we need, in, in, in that vein, we need to remove this dichotomized view of service and perhaps even repent of it that views 1A and 1B or JV varsity. I'm not good enough to do those things because that diminishes the spirit of Christ that exists within every brother and sister in this room. Even for our children and youth who are here right now, like you have the same spirit your mom or dad has. You do. It's not like, well, I'm gonna give you the 13-year-old version of the Holy Spirit. Your parents have the 40-year-old version. Like, that's not how it works. It is the same spirit. You have the same ability to serve and care. And yeah, there's maturity that needs to be there, but that's the same for the 40-year-old Holy Spirit person too. And so we need to view all of what this church can be. And I look forward to growing with you and learning more about how we can live this out so that Jesus can be made better known throughout this world. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the gospel that you have given to us. We are grateful for the giftedness of this church and the things that we can learn as we see needs being met and a gospel being preached. So help us to hold firmly to that, Lord. We praise you for it. Ask your grace and your goodness in our lives and hearts. We lift it up in Christ's name. Amen.